0: William McGuire, today's guest, is an investor focused on building communities. Since 2016, Will has gone from being an investor in one startup to being an investor advisor in 80-plus private companies. He started in Colo to facilitate collaboration between community investors and entrepreneurs. He'll share insights about his work and his superpower. I'm your host, Devin Thorpe. Welcome to the Superpowers for Good show well thank you so much for joining me for this conversation it's been so great to connect with you recently we're excited to have you at super crowd 22 and i'm thrilled to have a chance today to talk to you more about your great work and to introduce you to my audience
1: well, i appreciate you for having me Devin. it's gonna be a lot of fun
0: well, well thank you thank you uh, we, we really are excited to have you uh, participate at supercrowd22 i think you're going to add a lot of value on the program there um, but let's talk a little bit about, the, about Incolo. Uh, tell us what it is you're doing. You're, you're doing some amazing things uh, backing entrepreneurs.
1: Yeah, th- thanks for asking about it. Uh, essentially, what Incolo is doing is we're fixing capitalism for communities. And what I mean by that is that you know, we've had laws in place since the 1930s that have prevented access for the broader community to participate in things in their backyard, like a coffee shop or, you know, the app that's on your cell phone, you know, the next Ubers of the world, the apartment complex. These are all called like private market securities. And essentially, Encolo works with uh, business owners and founders that are building those businesses and shows them and gives them the optionality to raise from their local community, from everyday people. You know, their customers and their fans right alongside uh, their more traditional forms of capital. And uh, we've been doing that since late 2019. And we've had a lot of founders that have joined that kind of community-owned accelerator that we built.
0: Now, that's great. Uh, So tell us a little bit about the accelerator program. How does it work?
1: Yeah, so we've we've sought founder input for it but uh we dive deep in a couple areas in the end and we do it over a four-month period where the founders come in we go super deep on governance we call it founder protection you know how is cap table and everything else structured to help protect the founder and keep mutual incentives aligned as a team thought about how they're onboarding future advisors or team members and how are they thinking about investors are they just money or they actually potentially strategic sales channels. And so then in parallel to that, they look at their optionality, we help guide them through their optionality for funding, which may include the investor crowd or may include traditional sources, or sometimes we've even had founders that come out of the whole program and they're like, man, we can just double down on revenue growth and grow that way, which is fantastic as well. And then lastly, like if a founder's gonna take in capital, we talk a lot about, well, how do you take a $1,000 check writer, for example, who may have never participated as an investor before, but they have a deep, trusted connection to somebody that you're trying to sell to and can make the intro to drive a multi million dollar sales channel? and or global partnership. And we've had founders that have done that, which is really neat and something that wasn't possible before these new laws got put in place in 2016. So in overall, what the accelerators is aiming to do is to give founders the optionality to go after it and then grab the bull by the horns and pour some gas on the fire and run with it if they're ready to go.
0: Yeah. As you've been working with entrepreneurs, uh, you talk about the, you know, uh, those those situations where people realize that with some careful budgeting uh, they can bootstrap the the process going forward by you know growing revenue expanding margins etc. But oftentimes uh, the reality is outside capital is required and you you often work with entrepreneurs to attract crowdfunding capital. Uh, how do you help people figure out when Or what do you see as being the right mix of situations, fact sets for a good crowdfunding raise?
1: Yeah, great question. Uh, One of the first things to ask founders is, do your customers love what you do? And it it really doesn't matter whether it's a business-to-business B2B company or B2C company. Just what is the input from people that are already close to you? and generally founders got a pretty good answer to that and they've got a loyal base of customers that are engaged that are maybe referring them to other customers there's potentially a likelihood that some of them would probably already invest and then the second thing is just from a founder perspective do they have their sales and marketing processes already lined up again if we're going to go after an investment crowdfunding raise we want to make sure that end to end the company is aligned to take advantage or i guess better bring mutual advantage to both the investors who are going to be on founder-friendly terms that are also helping propel the company forward at various times throughout its growth. So to a founder, I I ask questions like, do you care whether it's a $100 check writer or a $100,000 check writer? How do you treat both of those parties? How do you see them as part of your, um, your access to capital and access to growth? So generally, founders that have a pretty good sense of here's who our our sales channel is, here's where we've got gaps that we're trying to fill, then there's normally a nice little marriage that can sometimes be made through an investment crowdfunding raise or community round or regulation crowdfunding, equity crowdfunding. It all has these different names right there.
0: Yeah, well, you know, it's fascinating that uh, investing in crowdfunding deals. Is spreading really quite widely? There are a lot of people who've done it. Uh, uh, on the order of a million and a half different people have invested in a crowdfunding round since it became legal six years ago. That's that's a lot of people. It is. At the same time, uh, you know, at the same time, you and I would have to recognize that means that there are about two hundred and fifty million adults in the United States who haven't done it yet. That's right. Um, <laughs> So there are more who haven't done it yet. What would you say to one of those 250 million to encourage them to give it a try?
1: Oh, that's a great question. I get that a lot. I mean, I think it's important to note that like we never really give other people investment advice about they should do something. It It's more of when I've had people approach me in the past, I just kind of tell my story. Like, you know, the reason Will McGuire, myself and my wife got involved was that we saw that there were founders building really cool stuff in our backyard. Um, and the fact they were opening up the opportunity for people to participate, that was appealing to us. And many times we've been able to help those founders grow just through connections. So when people come to me with that, it's normally of a question of like, what do you enjoy? Um, so I was talking with somebody the other day and we were just talking back and forth about some cool companies that were being built in our backyard and companies we'd like to see. And, you know, we almost got into a session where we're like, man, it'd be really cool if a company was building this or building that, it almost became like an incubation cycle. And it's like, oh, if, if we had somebody that was building that they could go get funded now from anybody else that also agreed with that. So a lot of it, yeah. I think, has to go with affinity of what um, an individual wants to see in the world and then a founder who's already building that company in the world. And it kind of starts there is what I see. But the majority of the time, I mean, these investors are coming from directly from the founders channels, um, people they already know yeah. and people that those people know.
0: Yeah, the, the, the challenge in a way is that not everyone knows a founder yet. Uh, almost all of us eventually get to know a founder somewhere along our path, and then we have an opportunity to come into that deal. But at the same time, building a, um, a portfolio really requires a more deliberate approach from the investor side. Not a, it, it's not just a matter of waiting passively for founders in your circle to come across you. How would you encourage investors, new crowdfunding investors to begin strategically, thoughtfully, prudently building a portfolio of investments in the crowdfunding space?
1: That's a great question. I I mean, I think for somebody that is seriously looking at becoming an investor, they should take advantage of the tools that are already out there to help them find what's in their backyard. Um, Some of the sources out there, like I know King's Crowd is an aggregator, so they take Investment crowdfunding rounds, community rounds are across like every platform out there. Since there's like 50 to 60 of these platforms that facilitate all these offerings and they aggregate them in one place, and then people can search them by geography. Uh, in colo, just is kind of like a give back to the community, um, every founder that we know that's operating or connected either out of North Carolina, like they're formed there or they're connected to. So it might be like a California company that's doing a lot of work. In North Carolina, we've aggregated them on our site uh, just to give people a landing spot. Just see what's being built in their backyard. Um, we didn't experiment during COVID. That was kind of related to this. We weren't trying to get anybody to actually invest in companies. We were just interested how kids viewed businesses. Because let's face it, like, where do our kids go to learn about how a coffee shop's built, or a tech company, or you know the apartment complex going up? So we we posted. And had these little sessions with uh, we called them little investors where we had 10 year old to 13 year olds uh, with their parents pulling up their cell phone We said hey parents we just want to see how our kids interact i've got a five-year-old and a nine-year-old so my nine-year-old was looking on my cell phone and he's like hey that company's cool and then we had the kids get together and kind of talk about what they want to see built in the world well what was really neat about that i'll never forget the day that we pulled up the site and, you know, three or four kids on the call and there were films being built um, on the, you know, that we were shown on the site. There was an app company out there. There uh, was another company out there that was doing assisted housing, assisted living housing. And we asked all the kids, like, what's interesting to you? And what was really interesting was I'll never forget the 10 year old said, well, that company was cool and the film company was cool. But Live Well Assisted Living was my, my favorite offering. We're like, Live Well? assisted living let's come for a 10 year old why
0: it's a 10 year old kid what do
1: I... <laughs> kid wow. we're like why um, you know just curious and she's like well film was cool you know that was neat they were building that and it was neat that there was the app out there that was for quirky people because I kind of feel quirky too but when I was reading through Livewell they were my favorite because the way that the business owners talked about the business I felt like they were going to take care of Grandma and Grandma's aging. And then she's asking stuff like, what's a share price? <laughs> a 10. Yeah. So like, w- one thing that's really neat about these offerings is that since they're all public, whether it's a child or whether it's an adult, just somebody who's interested in what's being built, there's a far deeper relational aspect of what's being built in our backyard and the types of companies that can be built in our backyard. And it's easy for people to see those in one place across platforms that kind of aggregate them in one place and see what they're interested in in the world.
0: Yeah. As you uh, look at your experience as an investor, really? your experience with your kids, uh, I think some people, many of us really, if we're being honest, have been conditioned over the last 80, 90 years uh, from the, Federal government telling us that we were not allowed to invest in private companies as a general rule, as ordinary investors. It gave us the impression that we probably just weren't smart enough, or the government would let us do it. Right? How do you overcome that sense, whether it's internal or external, however it's formed in our heads, that we're not able to invest in uh, in crowdfunding deals. How do you overcome
1: that? Uh, that's a great question. I mean, I, I even see that within founder circles where you have a team member who even has equity in a company they're building. That company has exited. They've received a return off of it, but they don't know the first thing about investing in private companies, even though they've been on the other side of it. So generally, the response is when somebody finds out they can do it, they're like, wait a minute what is this world? Like, I've never heard of this. I didn't even know it was possible for me to place money mm-hmm. in companies in my backyard, Are you, are you literally tell me I can do this or do that. And it's yeah. more of an unveiling, I think, for most people that that world even exists. And because of that, what I found is most people don't view it, um, they view it as an alternative part of their portfolio if they participate or something fun to do. Uh, in some cases and then some people take it really seriously they really get involved and they see it as a pathway to growing potential like the retirement portfolio but i mean you and i all know like most of the companies in this world especially private market are going to fail so the the method of investing across multiple companies like my wife and i've done where we've invested across 80 plus is the same thing that you know an angel or vc would do but I normally find that people, when they find out about this world, are either doing it because they find the world of private market investing is super attractive as an alternative, that they can put money into a company that can potentially skyrocket, you know, skyrocket more than something that would skyrocket on the public stock market. Or they find it really interesting that they can put small dollars in something local that they've never been able to participate in. But that's just kind of the feedback that people have given me that when they've participated in that world, and I've just been talking to people in general. But that was yeah. what attracted me to the industry, too, and my wife, too. Um, you know, uh, the future of innovation. I, I found a lot of people that resonate with uh, one of the offerings we participated in, was called Koning, and they make a three dimensional breast scanner, you know, for yeah. stage zero, stage one cancer detection. 43,000 women per year die of breast cancer the tech from that company existed 20 years ago but somebody decided it wasn't worthy of funding so the flip side of that is is i'm finding a lot of people like wait a minute we can now fund the innovation that can save lives and provide cures or create the communities we love just nobody ever told us that was possible and it's crazy when they think about it that we had laws in place as Americans, for 80 plus years, yeah. they prevented access because of arbitrary wealth status that basically created a caste system in the U.S. So there's a wide range that I'm finding when I'm talking to people about why they're participating, but I think it's more of a self-actualization for most people and they actually put dollars in something. But again, most of those dollars from founders are being, you know, four founders are being sourced by the founders themselves across all these platforms. From yeah. Yeah.
0: People. you know, it's, it's interesting. Uh, you, you talk about having made 80 investments and, mm-hmm. and of course you achieve something of a port, a, you know, a real portfolio at that point, And that minimizes some of the idiosyncratic risks and things in the, in, you know, individual investments. Uh, and I think at some point, some people may feel yeah. daunted by that. I can't make 80 investments, but, The reality is you get a lot of the benefits of a portfolio, maybe not the full benefit you'd have of making 80 investments, but you get a lot if you made 12 and you could get 12 investments by making four $100 investments a year, $400 a year for three years. You'd have a portfolio of 12 companies. You'd only have invested $1,200 over three years, but you'd have a little portfolio that would eliminate most of the risk that you think of when you make one investment. Uh, Now you've got 12 and and you only need one superstar out of 12 to get all your money back. Right? So it seems like people can invest, right?
1: Yeah. I mean, I I think it's interesting too, like especially now uh, with where the public stock market is right now with everything pretty much going down is that uh, I've seen, you know, it's crazy to think about taking like, you know, a share of Amazon or Apple, and divide it among multiple companies that are out there in the private market. I mean, there are little these little things called revenue share offerings, simply meaning that people sharing the upside of a revenue that a company is producing, like a coffee shop, that are sometimes outperforming the stock market, and the people that are investing can do stuff to increase the potential return. So. I mean, one of those examples was a little honey company that raised on one of the funding platforms out there. And they said, hey, look, for every 100 bucks you put in, we're going to pay you back 100 plus $50 on top. And we're going to try to do that over like a five-year period. They ended up generating a 38% annualized return because the people, their customers that love them so much uh, told a bunch of other people, and everybody shopped from that place. So we all shop local, so now we can invest local too. And just because they told more people about, hey, the honey exists, they got paid back sooner. So their are effective, like yeah. 50 bucks on top of the every hundred they put in came back quicker. So, I mean, there's, yeah. there's these neat like ways I think community can help grow their local community and take advantage of like what has been locked out to them for the past 80 years, but also help do it in a way that's authentic to helping grow companies in our backyard. I, like, I can't ever encourage somebody to do that. I mean, when I want to come across super clearly. This world's super risky to anybody that participates. But it's neat that we actually had the optionality to participate now when most people didn't before. And even the wealthy, you know, even the people that could participate before 2016 when the laws changed, you know, most accredited investors that, that wealth class allows them to invest in all these private market securities I find most of them didn't even know they had a wealth status attached to their name. <laughs> most, yeah. of them, most of the time they're like, what accredited? Like I went to university. They have no idea. There's like this caste system in place in the U.S. Right. It's, it's yeah, yeah. And they weren't investing. Yeah. And they weren't investing. Yeah. They weren't, they weren't doing
0: it. And, and there, and there were a lot of practical reasons for that. Right. Cause the expectation in a lot of circles, if you were an accredited investor to be an angel that you'd have to put you know, at least 15 grand in a deal, but some groups were requiring 25, 50 or 100 uh, per deal. And and most people who are well off enough to be accredited investors are not re- well off enough to do that. So, yes, this is a great time to be an investor. I, I want to shift gears. I, I uh, Will, I could talk to you for six more hours about uh, crowdfunding and I'd like to, but uh, we better move on. Um, you've done some amazing things. Uh, you're an impressive guy. What do you see as your superpower?
1: Uh Great question. Superpower. Uh, I think it's the ability to have empathy with others. So like when I was 14, I found out that I needed this thing called a cardiac pacemaker because my heart was damaged or the sinus node that controls the beating of the heart was damaged. And I, I reflect back, on when I reflect back on my life, everything kind of points back to that being a pivotal moment in my life that I, you know, as a little middle school student, you know, kind of transitioning, I realized there's some greater purpose in life that I was supposed to be feeling. That has taken multiple forms, but I, I've never felt more alive than I have been today at this intersection where people can live into the calling that they're called to live into, whether that's as an employee as a founder, as an advisor, whatever role they place on their work in life, whether it's uh, being at home with the kids too. But, But that need to journey, that need to adventure, that need to create is something that we're super intentional about in our conversations when we're working with founders. And also it's something that I try to be super intentional about when I'm talking with friends. Like what really drives you? What's your, as Brandon from our team would say, your zone of genius? And so I hope my superpower is that there's enough of a framework that we're building out there where that type of conversation can occur so that the authenticity in society for what we're building and what shapes culture is embedded into everything that I do and everything that I work with other people on doing. Because I think if we start there, we'll eliminate a lot of the churn and bad innovation we've seen in society and really focus on things that matter the most to driving innovation and i don't know that that's kind of what drives me i don't know if that's my superpower or not but it's definitely something top of mind every day because when i look down at my five-year-old and my nine-year-old and my third child on the way coming in august the reason my wife and i jumped into leaving a full-time job at a company i loved that was paying you know we were comfortable was because we said, hmm, how can we live being comfortable up here as great of impact as that company is doing in society Is a B Corp, doing amazing work, founding B Corp member, right alongside Ben & Jerry's, Patagonia, Newman's Own, doing amazing work for the community. But we thought, how can we live authentically and tell our children that we tried to do everything to shape the future world when we've now participated in This investment crowdfunding world that literally allows us to shape culture, shape economy, shape where people fit in society, like provide that platform for them, if we don't take the risk on jumping into it. So I don't know if that totally makes sense, but to us, it's more of the intentionality of how things are built than, you know, any type of financial IRR that can be attached to it. It's more like ROX, where X is defined as impact. (laughs) And so i'm always asking people what's your ex is it the amount of lives saved is it money returned and reinvested is it a uh, number of people you touch is the amount that can go back you know it it all has to be defined around the x for the individual with some intentionality around it like, yeah well, that's, that's
0: brilliant it. now I, back to your empathy superpower i'm intrigued by the idea that there was a, a really challenging moment in your life that helped you uh, develop that empathy you know that, that when you needed the, the, the pacemaker what I'm curious about though will is how you would coach someone to develop empathy who maybe hasn't had that. Uh, it was a learning experience for you and i don't know that we want to tell people to wait until they have a no. profound experience uh, to become to learn empathy i don't know that we want to encourage people to have near death experiences to learn nope. what would you how would you coach someone to develop empathy because i think a lot of us aspire to it and and struggle
1: uh talk to my wife <laughs> no i mean um I've often found people in my life that are far more empathetic than me so uh normally when we're engaging in those types of conversations there's some type of form of retreat and reflection that's my takes and asking really hard questions uh in the form of like let's say it's in the form of the accelerator context one of my first questions to founders is um where do you see yourself in 15 years And there's a lot of revealing in that. We can ask it different ways. Like, what's your exit path for your company? Do you sell it to somebody else? Do you cash flow it? Do you pass it on the family? Um, Where are your colleagues in 15 years? Like, the way the person sees the world in 15 years, I often find is a reflection of kind of where they are at that, that journey along calling. And challenging that becomes the foundational aspect of everything that they do from this point moving forward. And they may go super deep into reflection, they may have already reflected on, maybe they haven't, but often find just asking that one question and asking it multiple different ways. And then asking for examples where they feel like they could double down on that, you know, have fun with it. Um, Generally, a process through there is an interesting uh, journey that happens for multiple people. And it's been really neat, you know, stuff I can't really share on here, But the types of interactions back and forth with founders just over the past, you know, short three years that I've had with many founders has been amazing to see the ups and downs in their life, ups and downs in my life and family's life. You know, that I think is the key to tapping into people's calling and then being authentic with it. But it's not something that can be shoved on somebody to your point. It's something they have to self-discover along the way. And normally when somebody's hit the bottom of something, maybe it's not like a near-death experience, but it's a super struggle they're coming to, how they rise out of that with others and how vulnerable they're willing to get with others during that time frame. is generally where I find most people, find part of their superpower and build a little bit more authenticity in their life, which is always a continuous journey for myself and others as well. Yeah,
0: yeah. Well, I think that that's really some profound stuff, Will, and I appreciate you sharing uh, is it's really helpful. I I think uh, I know I aspire to develop greater empathy, and I think a lot of us do, um, especially uh, middle-aged white guys like me who, uh, to some extent, were raised in a place of privilege. You know, one of my Uh, white guy friends pointed out that, you know, when we were young, no one ever told us, you know, young man, you look like you're going to grow up to be a great follower someday. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, uh, uh, you know, it it, it just wasn't that way. And so it's hard for us in a way to reset and see our role in in society in a new way. So I appreciate you sharing some insights because I really want to, to have greater empathy. Well, Will, thank you for taking the time to be with us today. Before you go, I want you to take a minute or two and tell people, especially entrepreneurs who might be interested in your program, how they can connect with you, how they apply for the incubator, what other support you might offer, and how they tap into all of that, okay?
1: Yeah, sure thing. I mean, founders can always reach out to me, just will at incolo, I N C O L O dot I O. And more information about what we built with the founder communities right on our website, just in And I'm happy to send them other resources for how founders are scaling their companies and growing through the crowd and the type of, you know, future they're creating for their communities. But all starts there, and we've got lots of cool, uh, multiple industry because we're multifaceted in what we do. It's not just uh, tech. It's everything from commercial real estate to med tech to uh, you name it.
0: Yeah, fantastic. Well, again, Will, thank you so much for being with us today. We're we grateful that you'll be with us for SuperCrowd 22 in September. I hope lots of people will register to learn more about you and connect with you there. I think it'll be a fabulous opportunity to interact with you in your session. So um, uh, thank you for doing that. And we wish you every, every single success in the great work you're doing to build community.
1: Well, thank you for, again, you and your team for setting up a platform for people to converse on the the topic because it's probably one of the most transformational topics that's occurring. In my opinion, I'm a little biased, but it's (laughs) neat to have people be able to come together for that and just, you know, be able to chat and see real life stuff that's occurring.
0: All right. Thank you. Thank you. Now let's do some good. Thank you for tuning in to the Superpowers for Good show twice each week. We host changemakers who share their impact, insights, and superpowers. Don't miss another episode. Subscribe today at superpowersforgood.com. That's superpowers, number four, good.com. Be super empowered. Get your copy of the book, Superpowers for Good, as an ebook, audiobook, paperback, or hardcover edition via your favorite online retailer. Interested in having me speak to your company, organization, or association? Visit DevonThorpe.com. Then let's talk. Now, keep using your superpowers for good. Together, we can reverse climate change, improve global health, and eradicate poverty.